Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Economic redistribution and economic inequality in recent years has been a hot topic in part thanks to presidential elections. You remember that Barack Obama in 2008 at a campaign stop in Ohio said, I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. I actually believe in redistribution, at least at a certain level, to make sure that everybody's got a shot. In one of his State of the Union addresses, Obama signaled that income inequality would be his domestic focus during the remainder of his term in office. The fact that he considered income inequality rather than, than employment or economic growth to be the most important economic issue is peculiar, although not really surprising, is it? For the last few years, the political and cultural elites have been obsessed with this issue. One does not have to be an economist to be aware that some people make more money than other people, or some people have more material belongings than each other. I think Bill Gates' house could include all the square footage in all of our houses. It's the way it is. And if you go to Ikea, you can see an apartment that would fit everything in for 600 square feet, which is amazing. <clears throat> However, ideas like this. The upper 7% of households saw their aggregate share of the nation's overall household wealth rise to 63% in 2011, up from 56% in 2009. The top 1% of the country owns 34.6% of the wealth in total net worth. The next 19% own 50.5%, and the bottom 80% owns only 15%. That's income inequality. This data reveals that a smaller number of people own the majority of wealth in the United States and that that number has grown smaller. The issue of economic inequality has led many to conclude that something must be done. Philosophers, religious leaders, politicians have proposed solutions ranging from full-blown rejection of capitalism to a modification of the economy through a strict program of regulation and high taxation. Well, so how did we get here? Does anybody remember Robert Owen? Anybody remember where he lived? New Harmony. New Harmony. Well, in 1924, <clears throat> excuse me, in, uh, it's not correct, 1825, a little earlier than that. Uh, Owen, who was a Welsh textile mill industrialist and social reformer, purchased the 20,000-acre Harmonist town, land and buildings, for the whopping total of $150,000. 20,000 acres, a whole town buildings, land, everything. And he was hoping to establish a new community, a utopian society. And you'll remember that at that time, utopian societies were all the rage. The Harmonists came from the east. They built a facility there. And then about 10 years later, they decided to move back to Pennsylvania. All right? They built buildings, facilities, and businesses that are still there today. Owens and his crew came in, <clears throat> didn't last two years. Matter of fact, it started falling apart in the first few months. Here's a picture of what they thought that their utopian society was going to live, look like. His New World mentality 
his idea of happiness, enlightenment, and prosperity through education, science, technology, and communal living was what he was all about. He would create a superior social, intellectual, and physical environment based on his ideas of social reform. While many of the town's new arrivals had a sincere interest in making it work, the experiment also attracted, and I quote, crackpots, freeloaders, and adventurers whose presence in the town made success unlikely. Even Robert Owen's son, William Owen, doubted what was going to happen. When Owens returned from his European trip, eight months later he found the area in chaotic mess. <clears throat> the socialist community started to break up early. In February of 1826, the town developed a new constitution. They actually went through three constitutions trying to develop this socialist community. They had an anarchist there, Josiah Warren. You know, if you ever go to an anarchist meeting, there's always a leader. How does that happen? Anyway, this anarchist, Joseph Warren, uh, jo Josiah Warren, excuse me, one of the original participants in the community, asserted that the community was doomed to failure due to a lack of individual sovereignty and private property. Okay. Part of New Harmony's failing stemmed from three activities that Owen brought from Scotland to America. The first, Owen actively attacked established religion, despite our constitutional guarantees of religious freedom and separations of church and state. Second, Owen remained stubbornly attached to the principles of the rationalist age of enlightenment. Now remember, what we went through. You had modernity, all these great promises of man being the savior of himself and this pride, this incipient pride creeping in, which led to the failures and the disappointments of modernity. We were not delivering what was promised. And so that's where postmodernity, where we are now, that's what that came out of. All right? So you have the rationalists growing up and taking more power, having more influence. And so you have these utopian societies being set up. <clears throat> well, eventually, this heterogeneous collection of radicals, enthusiastic devotees to principles, honest latitudarians, and lazy theorists were failing. And the town eventually sold and broke up. Well, this, this fellow, Robert Owen, in 1816 had written a new view of society in which he called for the forma formation of groups or societies that would reject capitalist ideas. Here's a quote, New View of Society by Robert Owen. For it is now obvious that such a system must be destructive of the happiness of the excluded. Capitalism would make everybody unhappy by their seeing others enjoy what they are not permitted to possess. So everybody's not going to be happy because they're not permitted to own that luxury BMW or that 5,000 square foot house. <clears throat> and also that it tends by creating opposition from the justly injured feelings of the excluded in proportion to the extent of the exclusion to diminish the happiness even of the privileged. Well, 
That brings us to our next character. Around this time, Karl Marx actually included some of the teachings of Robert Owen. Robert Owen, from humble little Scotland and then New Harmony, Indiana, Marx took some of his teachings and they were transformed by the inclusion of Darwinian evolutionary ideas and class warfare. <clears throat> if it was these class struggles that he proposed would cause the formation of communism. He believed capitalism was run by the wealthy classes for their own benefit. He predicted that capitalism, due to class welfare, would self-destruct and be replaced by a new system called what? Communism, socialism, right? In the Communist Manifesto, he wrote this, the theory of the communists may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. This climatic revolution would result in the complete redistribution of wealth. So even though we're hearing it today, it's not a modern idea. Anybody recognize these two people? President Woodrow Wilson and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, liberal Christianity joined with these ideas during this time to form the progressive movement. Progressive presidents like Wilson and FDR would use the government to increasingly regulate the economy and to begin redistributing wealth. One way this was accomplished was by a progressive income tax in which the wealthy pay a larger percentage of their income than those of the poor, which was very much unlike the Old Testament policy, right? which had a flat tax. Everybody same, paid the same percentage across the board. Marx and Owen's ideas, although initially opposed to religion, would find some acceptance in liberal Christianity in the 19th and 20th century. You have a quote there from an Episcopalian, Bishop Frank Spaulding. Listen to, listen to the audacity of this quote. The Christian church exists for the sole purpose of saving the human race. So far, she has failed, but I think that socialism shows her how she may succeed. It insists that men cannot be right until the material conditions be made right. Although man cannot live by bread alone, he must have bread. Therefore, the church must destroy a system of society which inevitably creates and perpetrates unequal and unfair conditions of life. We all ready to sign up for this? Okay. In the foyer, there's a sign-up sheet. No, I'm kidding. Is there a date on that? I mean, where are we in our history? What is the year? What is the year? Well, the year is uh, in uh, November of 1914. And by the way, if anybody needs any of these sources, uh, I have them all. They're on the back of there, and I can provide them for you. Uh, and they're a nine-point font. There are so many different sources that were used. I'm sorry about that. Well, the idea that the church needs to liberate people from a capitalist society and all of its trappings, that's called liberation theology. Liberation theology never became mainstream in the U.S., although it did have some followings in Latin American countries. And so Hugo Chavez said... Capitalism is the way of the devil and exploitation. If you really want to look at things through the eyes of Jesus Christ, who I think was the first socialist, only socialism can really create a genuine society. 
Jim Wallace, who is a religious advisor to President Obama and the founder of Sojourners, has been a proponent of economic redistribution. You see the quote here, economic inequality is unjust and Christians should be working for the common good. So if you are a Christian and you are a capitalist and you want to hold on to your wealth, you are a greedy, self-centered capitalist and you must change. O'Brien wrote for the Huffington Post. You see the quote there. God's holy people are clearly and undeniably commanded to redistribute, redistribute their holdings to ensure that inequalities of wealth and poverty do not corrode their community to make sure that none of God's precious children have less than they need or more than they need. Does this sound a little bit like Karl Marx? Okay. So the influence of the world is affecting and impacting the church. <clears throat> well, let's talk a little bit about some facts. Inconvenient truths, if you would. The existence of income inequality is generally a fair distribution. It's a sign of a fair distribution of incomes. The existence of income inequality is generally a fair a sign of fair distribution of incomes. Would it be fair if every worker earned $1 million? What would be wrong with that idea? Yeah, consumers going to pay for it. What else? Some work harder than others. What else? Some are more educated than others. When that little porcelain fixture in the tiny room in your house that has all the plumbing in it, when that doesn't work, who is the most important person in your life? <laughs> the plumber. When the light switch in your hallway doesn't work and you keep stubbing your toes on the baluster of your staircase, Jay Hochstetler is the most important person in your life. Okay? So there are just common sense, normal areas where the value of what a person contributes is higher than others. That doesn't denigrate the individual value and contribution or the image of God or the talents that he has given us. It just means that there's a market value placed upon the individual and their skills. Excuse me, I should say their skills. Number two, measures of income inequality are meaningless because incomes are not zero-sum. Or, as Dave Ramsey so puts it so well, it ain't a fixed pie. It ain't a fixed pie. For example, imagine a country in year one, 100 workers made 50,000 a year. In year number two, however, 99 workers made 50,000 a year, and one worker, let's call him Bill Gates since I've already used him, all right? Mr. Gates makes 1 million a year. For zero-sum income inequality thinkers, this is not possible. For Bill Gates to make one million, the 99 other workers would have to do what? They'd have to give up their money, right? But that's not reality. In the real world, Gates doesn't take income away from other people. And as a matter of fact, he creates new wealth for both himself and millions of other people. The pie is not fixed. The pie is adjustable and flexible. Not that I want the government to print more money, mind you. Num 
<laughs> Number three, income inequality and poverty are separate issues. The most charitable interpretation for why Christians believe that income inequality is an important and critical issue is because they assume that it's a proxy for poverty. And it ain't. If that were true, Christians would indeed need to be concerned about income inequality because concern about poverty is a foundational principle of any Christian view of economics. Fortunately, there is neither, there is neither a connection or correlation. A country could have absolutely no poverty at all and have extremely high income inequality. Does that make sense? You could have absolutely nobody living in poverty and one person earning $40,000 a year and another person earning $40 million a year. That's income inequality. It doesn't have to be the same, and there would be no poverty. It's totally possible. Number four, facts about income inequality. No one in America is really concerned about absolute income inequality. Now, what do I mean by that? If your income is 50000 a year, you're making twice the level of income at a family at the poverty threshold. Actually, I think that number is a little higher now. I don't think it's twenty five. I think it's crept up. If you were to distribute 12500 to the poor family and bring them up to thirty seven five, you would achieve a level of income equality since both families would have thirty seven five, right? Well, then... Why then don't more middle-class earners ask the government to distribute 25% of their annual income to the poor? There's a sign-up sheet in the foyer. Everybody who wants to do that, there's different need, isn't there? There are different family sizes, you know? Everybody's quiver is not as full as the Galants or the Rosses, right? There needs to be various incomes that people will drive toward to provide for themselves. The reasons are numerous and varied, but they reveal that most people are truly not interested in reducing absolute income inequality or even income inequality relative to themselves. Quoting that famous British uh, Christian music group, Pink Floyd, Keep your hands off of my stash. And that's what most people think. Christian, non-Christian. You know, yes, income inequality is, is important. Yes, it's important to be concerned about the poor. But go collect it from everybody else. Don't collect it from me. Number five. Discussion of income inequality are almost always about redistribution of income. Redistribution of income from the vaguely defined rich to the poor has always been a standard feature of egalitarian-based politics. This has been particularly true in America since the 40s uh, to today. Until about 1975, it was common for political liberals to propose both the problem, income inequality, and a solution, income redistribution together. However, after 75, we see its shift in rhetoric. When talk about income inequality continued to increase, discussing the solution, income redistribution, was significantly downplayed. Why? Because ain't nobody want to hear it. 
as we found on the issue of taxes, there are not enough rich people to take money from. You've heard the expression, you've heard the illustration that if you took all of the money, all of the wealth from this top 1% and redistributed it, you would still not solve the problem. There's not enough money in that pot. And number six, whoops, let's go back here. Number six, the only real threat caused by income inequality are problems caused by covetousness, by envy. That's the root cause. Although it's increasingly described as a threat to our country's economic well-being and to democracy itself, you rarely hear explanations about why it's perceived as a threat. And the reason is because concerns are driven by envy. Envy is generated by positional concerns only when the individual's current situation is below his or her own aspiration level. I'm not making enough money. In California right now, John MacArthur, I forget when it was, but John MacArthur uh, had a, uh, a blog, or was it, no, I'm sorry, it was Al Mohler. Al Mohler had a blog where he talked about millionaires in California who are saying, a million just doesn't go as far as it used to. And they're envious of the people who are, you know, billionaires. <clears throat> Keeping up with the Joneses. Or the Clampets, I don't know. <clears throat> A study found that of the Occupy Wall Street protesters, remember those folks? A group that was possessed with inequality, over a third had household incomes of over, how much? Guess. Over 100,000. A third of them had incomes over 100,000. Now, to be fair, to be honest, it could be that they were just very passionate about the poor, right? And they, their motives could have been absolutely pure and righteous. One of the authors of the study said, it's a pretty affluent demographic and highly educated. Many were children of the elite, if you wish. FDR, who was a progressive, did not come from an impoverished family. The sad fact is that redistribution often creates more inequality by two ways. First, it makes hard for people to move from one class to another. Instead of raising all people, it often limits success. I think you have a quote there by Craig Mitchell. Class warfare, wealth distribution, and socialism can, at best, make people only equally miserable. The second way it creates more inequalities through the abuses of the government system. How many of you are familiar with the word crony capitalism? Every now and then I get on, a, get on my high horse and I go to my favorite social media site, Facebook, and I post something about government waste and how we can save $2.3 billion if we eliminate these wasteful programs. How many of you enjoy going to the DMV? There's a sign-up sheet in... Now, if you work for the DMV, I'm sure you're an honest person, you're trying to do the best, but the problem is the government bureaucracy and the speed and the size just, just makes it difficult to work with. 
Everybody in this room has heard about the $600 toilet seat. Everybody in the room has heard about the $1,200 hammer. Right? Those are examples of the fact that the government system is not the most efficient system in terms of generating income, wealth, and equality or fairness. Crony capitalism is what happens when certain businesses or people work to get preferential government treatment. And we have lots of programs like that on the books right now. We subsidize a lot of businesses. That's something that needs to be carefully looked at. Well, how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, my first question is this. Does the Bible mandate redistribution of wealth? Dylan Glant, an aspiring capitalist, is shaking his head no. You say yes and no. Okay. Good. So the, the answer that Mr. Davis gave was this. It's yes and no. It depends on how you define redistribution of wealth and who is being compelled to do it and from what sources. That's a great answer. Yes. She's asking about the early church and she read my notes. Uh, when we get to that point, we're going to we're going to we're we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Let's go to Matthew twenty-five. Matthew twenty-five. The Bible is a foundation for an understanding of this issue. Turning to the Bible, we find that inequality of wealth and income can be attributed to three things. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, and sin. The first principle is God's sovereignty. Second is man's responsibility. And the third is sin. You are all familiar with Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, right? And there were three people involved in this parable of the talents. The master entrusted his wealth, his to these individuals. The first received five talents, went on the way, traded, gained five more. Verse 17, two talents, gained two more. And 18, the one who had one talent went away, dug a hole, hid his master's money. And so what happened? Well, during the accountability in verse 20, the servant who had five talents came up and said, see, I've gained five more. The master praised him. Verse 22, the one who had two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two. Here are two more talents. And then, finally, the third one came up and said, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. That's verse 24. And I was afraid, verse 25, went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours, verse 26. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and upon my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has more. The first principle is God's sovereignty. All wealth comes from God. Yes. He is the one who has made both 
the poor and the rich. First Samuel 2, verse 7. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. Now, that doesn't mean that we can ignore the poor. As Marilyn pointed out, we're going to address this in a few moments. And those who have been given material wealth, Ecclesiastes 5.19, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. God's sovereignty and creative power is on display in his creation of mankind. People are created with different abilities and talents. Some people are given the ability to be neurosurgeons, professional ball players, business leaders. Some are given natural talents to work with numbers or abstract principles. Why we pay football players more than we pay teachers is beyond me, but that's not my job. Okay? Some people with higher IQs, some people have musical talents. This does not mean that people are of greater eternal worth or do less respect in our world. However, it will mean that people will naturally have different levels of wealth. This quote by Dr. Ann Bradley, because gifts are different in value in the marketplace is subjective, incomes will be different. Income inequality is a natural part of the human condition. We are created uniquely, and that means there is no universal biblical standard for income equality. When your roof is in horrible shape, Chris Matthews is the most important person you know. At the macro level, all wealth distribution and redistribution is the work of our sovereign God. All of our possessions are His. So He gives and takes away as He sees fit. So how does God decide to distribute wealth? Well, He may give you many possessions, right? but not give you the power to enjoy those gifts. That's a tragedy. He may give you accumulated wealth and the power to enjoy those gifts. That's a great blessing. He may give you possessions, but through future persecution, he may take away all those possessions from you in the end. I think that's one of the most challenging thoughts. In Hebrews, you joyfully endured that your possessions were taken away. I have not experienced the, the presence and the power of God in my life to know that I could do that. To be still rejoicing in the midst of that persecution. God may call people to a life of unalleviated poverty. God may give us a life of great wealth. He may give you life in the middle, neither poor nor rich. God may make you wealthy and then call you to voluntary poverty in order to show the world that he is your greatest treasure. How many missionary stories are like that? How many missionaries that were part of the great missionary endeavor were from wealthy families? They just gave it up. They rejected their inheritance and went out and poured their life out on the mission field. None of these situations is normative. If God's sovereignty dispenses possessions to us as he sees fit, which he does, when it comes to possessions, our experiences will vary greatly. The second principle is man's responsibility. Man's responsibility. Man is given responsibility by God just as the servants in a parable were given responsibility to oversee the talents and the treasures that were entrusted to them. This is a great quote here from Chad, Dr. Chad Brand. You remember Dr. Brand was here during the... Uh, 
Reformation Conference. Men and women were created in part to work. They were intended to employ their creative genius in understanding the world they are placed in. They were intended to mirror God's eternal triuneness in enjoying one another's fellowship. And they were intended to worship the one who had made them and placed them there. By the way, if you would, please remember Dr. Brand uh, in your prayers. He is currently in Wisconsin waiting for an organ transplant. Um, the book of Proverbs talks often about responsibility. Time and time again, the responsibility of man coupled with God's sovereignty gives dignity to career choices. This also means that people will vary in their material wealth. And then the third principle is the principle of sin. Sin is a third contributor to economic inequality. Two servants put their talents to good work, earned a return on the investment. Why did the third servant not? From the parable of the talents, what? Fear. fear. What did he fear? He feared the master. What else, what else was about his relationship with the master? Did he respect the master? Did he love the master? No, he despised the master. And remember, the master said, you wicked and lazy, wickedness and laziness, greed and jealousy, theft and unjust gain are all contributors to income inequality because it will drive you to poverty. Now, with that biblical foundation, the redistribution view does not take adequately into account three biblical reasons for economic inequality. It does not acknowledge God's sovereignty, nor does it count for positive contribution of human responsibility, this would lead one to think that the problem for redistribution is that it places too much emphasis on sin. But actually, it does not. It's the opposite. Look at this quote from Schaefer. The views of redistribution are built upon the concept of man being basically good, linked with the idea, except, of course, the wealthy. The wealthy are not good. Don't forget that linked with the idea that all people need to be released from their economic chains. The perfectibility of man was the basis of much of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. Theoretically, it was a basis of the Marxist-Lenin Revolution in Russia. Each place this concept of the perfectibility of man has been acted upon. It has led to tragedy, to political chains, and to the loss of humanness. Uh, I'm sorry, humanness. Every attempt to put this utopian concept and practice has led to failure because it is false to what man is now, what he really is. Man is not intrinsically unselfish, corrupted only by outward circumstances. He is fallen. We are not who we are created to be. I think Schaefer hits the nail on the head. Instead of understanding that the problem is human nature... Redistributionists blame the system for the collapse of socialism, communism. So what's the expression? Why has socialism failed? Why has so communism failed? What is the expression that you hear by those who are advocates of eliminating income inequality through redistribution of wealth? Wasn't a large enough scale? It really hasn't been tried. True socialism really hasn't been tried. Well, true communism really hasn't been. There's been some. They blame the system. <laughs> yeah, the system is filled with people. My job would be great, except I have coworkers, I have a boss, and I have candidates I have to work with. The church would be perfect, except for all of us. 
Lacking this understanding of human nature and God's sovereignty, redistribution has another fatal flaw, the flaw of unintended consequences. When the state or government heavily imposes itself in the economic system, there are unintended and disastrous results. My father loved FDR. I couldn't say a word about FDR or his policies. But the fact of the matter is that the economic situation that FDR found himself in was elongated many times over because of the policies that the progressive system enacted. And the recovery was stretched out for over a decade. The government system is almost as complex as the human body. It operates through a bureaucracy that takes many steps to accomplish even the smallest of tasks. Add in the political process and no one can see how complicated things can be. One consequence is that taking money from the wealthy and giving it to the poor, to those who have not earned it, the government ends up punishing hard work so that my wife says at tax time, I'm going to stop working because we would pay less money in taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, it is not fair to say that all people who receive government benefits have been lazy bums mooching the system. My family lived through a time when we were on social aid. And I'm thankful for that. You know, I, I told you in the past that I had a rough childhood. And I'm thankful for the aid that we received. I'm thankful for the grant that I received that enabled me to go to college where I met my lovely wife. There are some people who are truly in need of help. The government programs cannot often distinguish between those who are truly in need and those who are slothful. Well, does the government mandate distribution of wealth? We need to ask the question, what do we do about the Christian poor? And that's where our dear sister pointed out. We want the church to care more, not less, about the suffering that comes from poverty. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And all suffering includes the miseries of, of people who live in extreme poverty. So we want to have biblical pillars under this. And there are biblical texts that refer to people of faith and then people who are not of faith. And the Christian poor are covered by passages that you see here. Matthew 25, 40. The king will say to them, As you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did to me. 1 John 3. If anyone sees the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? James 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in food, and one needs to say to you, Go in peace, be warm, be filled without giving them things needed for the body. What good is that? Deuteronomy 15. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers. Acts chapter 4. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement, he owned a land, a track of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet because he was supporting the brothers in Christ. And there also needs to be qualifications. Let's all turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
First Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 3 and including verse 16. This is instruction about honoring, money, providing help for widows. So we want to be conscious of our needs to help the Christian poor. But there are stipulations. There are legitimate stipulations. And Paul, in his instruction to Timothy, gives stipulations here. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first practice piety in regard to their own family. Now she who is a widow indeed and has been left alone fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers day and night. But she who gives to one pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and worse for an unbeliever. Paul also says somewhere, doesn't he? If any man does not work, you need to let him eat. All right? A widow is to be put on the list. Here's the qualification. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is less than 60 years, year, years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children and shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, assisted those in the, their qualifications. These are legitimate. What do we do about the non-Christian poor? What do we do about the non-Christian poor? Well, there are a variety of passages on those, and we don't need to commit, you know, exegetical suicide by wresting passages out of there are plenty of verses about the non-Christian poor Luke 6 love your enemies do good to those who hate you Matthew 7 who wishes whoever whatever you wish that others would do to you do to them it's the law and prophets Matthew 5 16 let your light shine before others they may see your good works give glory to your father Luke 10 who's my neighbor not necessarily a Christian brother right Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Not only the household of faith, Joel. Yeah, didn't know the guy. And a matter of fact, he gave, he gave unlimited coverage for this guy's care. Whatever you spend, I'll, I'll repay you. Carte blanche. <laughs> Give me your credit card, man. Let's zip it through here. Is it a chip or is it... Anyway. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 No one pays evil for evil, but seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Proverbs 19.17 One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. The Lord will repay him for his good deed. Psalm 37 The righteous man is gracious all day long, and he lends his descendants are a blessing. Matthew 5.42 Let's turn to Matthew 5. This one caught me in my tracks. So, in Matthew 5, and I looked through six commentaries trying to find a loophole. I couldn't find a loophole. And I was, like Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear, I was pinned to the wall with this passage. If you look at Matthew 5, Matthew 5 is very, very clear. Our Lord, talking about what the relationship is of his people, not only to each other, but to the world. In verse 38, he talks about 
the law and how the law is good. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was a law designed to prevent an excess of vengeance. It was not an unholy thing. It was saying, don't punish someone in excess of what they have done. That was the purpose of that. Jesus says in 39, don't resist an evil person who slaps you on the right cheek. Turn the other. If someone wants to sue you, take your coat. Let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, and that was a real thing, that military people could do that. Take this pack. Simon of Cyrene, what was he ordered to do? Take the cross piece and carry it for Jesus, who was bleeding out. In the middle of this, talking about enemies, verse 42 is there. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And what's the whole purpose? In the context, look at verse 45. The context, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. The Father shows radical generosity toward both good and evil people. The text makes no promise that all evil people are reformed as a result of his generosity. We are called to bear stunning resemblance to our Heavenly Father. Look at Matthew Henry's quote here. We must be charitable and beneficent. Must not only do no hurt to our neighbors, but labor to do them all the good we can. We must be ready to give. If you have an ability, look upon the request of the poor as an opportunity for the duty of almsgiving. Almsgiving is giving either money or food to the poor. When a real object of charity presents itself, we should give it the first word. We need discretion and should not give to the idle and unworthy that which should be given to those that are necessitous and well-deserving. Don't contrive excuses to shake them off. Now, Matthew, you're, you're, you're just meddling here, son. Be easy of access to him that would borrow. Does that sound a little bit like James? Don't tell him, go away, come back, and I'll give it to you. Though he be bashful and have not confidence to make known his case and beg the favor, yet thou knowest both his need and the desire, and therefore offer him the kindness. Now, we're not talking about lending your neighbor your power screwdriver. What do we do about beggars? John Piper, that passionate man who has been known for his kindness, talks about the fact that he walks to work. And when he walks to work, he doesn't drive past the guy holding the sign, veteran, homeless, no food, God bless. He walks past the guy. And he says this, my reflex is anger. My reflex is get a life. My reflex, I want to say, get a job. But I've not even entered into his story. I'm not interested in his condition. My reflex is anger. My reflex is a sinful one. And I do not think it is good or godly for me to respond that way. 
A lot of people say, yeah, well, he's going to rip you off. He's going to go take it and spend it on booze. Or, Well, yeah, it's very possible that we could be getting ripped off. Our default should be to give. Risk being ripped off than being shrewd. No. What can we do? You know, do we have to give money? No. Should we give money? No. Not necessarily. But the passage is there. What do we do with it? I'm not going to answer this question. I think that we need to wrestle with this and ask, what would the Lord have me do? Someone says, I need $2 to go visit my mother. Why not drive the person there? Offer to drive them there. If they reject, oh, I don't want you to ride, I want the money. Then you know. You've started to enter into their life and they put up, you know. Go to McDonald's, buy them a sandwich. You know? Enter into their life. First Joel, Joel had something, then Jason. You have, to, you, have to, you have to ask that question. But again, what would it mean, what is the opportunity that God puts before us to maybe enter that person's life and spend five minutes, ten minutes, understand where they're coming from? Jason. Yeah, so instead of giving money, offering to buy the person food. You know? And so again, entering into the life of the other person, taking that risk, taking the risk that, yeah, we could be getting ripped off. You know, I want, I've talked about this with our family, I want to start putting together little kits and, and have them in our car that maybe has a couple of balance bars, maybe a couple of coupons for McDonald's, maybe some, you know, maybe some hygiene items, and somebody see, I just give them that, you know, maybe a couple of gospel tracts. Where's Andy? Meals in a gospel track. Yep. 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 You want to be wise, but yes. 
<clears throat> yeah, that's a real risk. That's a real risk even engaging. You know, there are people who are, you know, have severe problems. And to even engage them in those problems could be to invite, you know, a violent response. That is a risk. You're absolutely right. It's harder for women, too. It's harder for women, too. Yes, good point. Yes, Dylan, who is not a woman. Right. You're not going to give somebody a pack of cigarettes, right? <laughs> right. <clears throat> yeah. I heard someone yesterday give an ex explanation of just that. It said, "Hey, terrific! Listen, you need you need work. You, you need work. You need money. Come on over to my house where Rake leaves." Person never showed up. Saw the person at the same place, you know, begging again. Hey, what happened? Uh, well, I, I couldn't show up. Well, you showed up here. You know, again, you know, not taking a uh, chance. Alan, and now this, listen, I, I really want you all to listen to Alan Lentz because Alan is a dear brother who um, has uh, the responsibility of working with the poor. Could we give Alan a microphone? No pressure here, Alan, but could we give... Uh, Alan, come on up here, brother. Come on up here. Alan works with the people who, in the area who are impoverished in various ways. Um, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have him on the podium. So, Which mic do you want him to grab, Michael? We'll just take one of the mics here. Just grab one of those. Um, and we as a church will direct people who come. They go up and down church row and they say, we want money, we want gas. Now, hey, if the Lord puts that on your heart to get some, take the person to the gas station, put gas in their tank. Do that, you know? But we give people a list of the societies and the groups that are like the ones that Alan works with because there are resources in the area that can help and dig deeper into the person's life. Can you hear me? Okay. So uh, one of the things that, that I thought about when um, Dan was, was talking was that individual that you see, one, it's illegal for somebody to fly a sign that says, please give me money. Not many people know that. Our city is actually getting ready to put up signs uh, encouraging people not to uh, give people money. Um, I work for Aurora um, here in Evansville, and we work with people who are, um, are homeless and or near homeless. And um, a lot of the, there are a lot of resources in our community to help people um, who are experiencing housing crisis. So the person that says I'm homeless, we know statistically they're, they're probably not. They, they typically make between 30 and $40 an hour um, to, to fly a sign. Um, and so the, the, when you offer somebody a, a, a job, you know, come rake my leaves, statistically the person that, that's flying the sign is not going to take that because they're going to take less money. Um, and so um, what, what I encourage people to do is, now I don't have business cards right now, but um, when I have business cards, I give them my business card. I say, you know, if you're experiencing a housing crisis, come see me. I'll be more than happy to sit down with you and help you figure out where do we go from here. 
Because a lot of times uh, a person uh, going through that can figure out where they need to go without having to get money or without having to go into shelter or something like that. Um, so you can always encourage people to come, come to my office, come meet with me. Um, I'm more than happy to sit down with somebody. Um, you know, more than happy to try to help them come up with a plan for, for how to uh, get back on their feet, things Great. like that. Thank you, Alan. One comment, and then we're going to have to close. I work for CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocate for Children. Right. In the inner city. CASA. Mm -hmm. CASA. And I am overwhelmed with the services that are available. Yep. There are lots of services, but. Yeah, a lot of people don't want them because they don't want the control. They don't want, yeah, the responsibility. Uh, there's a great quote here from R.C. Sproul that I'm going to have to close with. I encourage you to read it. The last question is, well, what happens? We've already covered who is my neighbor. What happens when the government decides to eliminate our tax deductions? For donate, giving to the church, what happens when the government decides that we are no longer tax-exempt at Faith Bible Church? Basically, it's... So what? We'll keep going. They take our building, we'll keep going. We're not stopping. You know, we are called to a radical obedience to Christ and to his church and to love people inside and outside. And I am thankful that Alan was here um, to compliment what's been said and what we've talked about. These things should be wrestled with. They're not easy answers. And I hope that I did not you know, pretend to provide easy answers. But the bottom line is this. The church has a real role in ministering to those who are suffering through poverty. Whether it's taking you know, a family member into your home and helping them out, or somebody on the street. Well, let's pray and trust the Lord to give Christ the glory. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for this challenging topic, but we thank you for this opportunity to reflect your goodness to our world. And we praise you for what you're going to do in our hearts and through us. Help us as we worship with your people to give you glory and honor. And we praise you in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.